Welcome back, everybody. We have a very special guest today, Richard Shell, who is a professor at the Wharton School at UPenn. He got started early in life growing up in a military family where uh, he felt like he was a little bit of a lost soul, as he puts it. And after traveling through places like Israel, Turkey, and then eventually finding himself in a Buddhist monastery, he discovered spirituality and then came back and began his journey that led him to being a teacher. So Nick, why don't you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, so upon his return, he studied English at Princeton University and got his bachelor's, and then he went on to uh, get his JD in law at the University of Virginia School of Law. Um, and at that time, he fell in love with the idea of being a professor. And now he is the Thomas Garrity professor at the Wharton School at UPenn. Um, and he's a professor of legal studies, business ethics, and management. And most recently, he authored uh, his fourth book, um, which is The Conscious Code, uh, Leading with Your Values. Um, and we discussed that in this episode. We discussed his background. Um, and yeah, I think it was a great conversation. Brennan, is there anything else you wanted to add? No, that, that sums it up. I think people are really going to enjoy it. And I'm excited to, to let's get right into it. You let's know? get into it. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, we really appreciate it. And Brennan and I are excited for this conversation since it's very much so Brennan's alley and his work. And there's definitely the whole psychological piece to it. So I'm excited about this as well. Um, but yeah, we like to get started by just having you share a little bit about your personal background and kind of some of the experiences that maybe led you to where you're at today and some of the work that you've done. Great. Thanks, Nick. Um, so I, I followed a pretty untraditional path to get to be a business school professor at the Wharton School. In fact, um, I had a long journey. Uh, I didn't start as an assistant professor until I was 37. Uh, and before that, I was a social worker, a bricklayer, a house painter, a musician. Uh, I played in a rock band in Cyprus. Uh, you know, I was a pretty peripatetic guy. Uh, and part of what motivates me to do what I do now is that journey. Uh, because as a, what we now call a millennial, when I was in my 20s and early 30s, I was um, pretty much a lost soul. Uh, I, um, I had been raised in a military family. Uh, my dad was a general in the Marines, and I was part of the Vietnam War era generation, and I became a pacifist and a conscientious objector, war resistor. And so I broke with my family over that. And my grandparents had both been in the military too, both sides. You know, I was a a military brat. And so the fact that I has was called at the time of that part of my life to understand what I was being asked to do, which was to go to Vietnam and kill people, I had no quarrel with whatsoever. And I just couldn't do it. I, I had to take a stand. That really underlined for me the importance of values, the importance of making your own path, and the pain, really, the difficulty of breaking with important parts of your life, like your family, uh, and and how hard it is to, once you're sort of cut away from all those moorings to discover what your life is about on your own. Uh, so I, and that's what I did. And of course, no one does anything on their own. So in my case, I 
was a backpacker and I ended up in Buddhist monasteries in Sri Lanka and in South Korea, where I studied under some remarkable uh, teachers and then ultimately came home and reconciled with my family, lived in their basement. Uh, they'd retired and and then went to law school because I <clears throat> needed to make a living. Um, and after being a lawyer for a little while, I, I, I had this uh, cataclysmically meta experience when I was a first year law student. Um, and you got to recognize I've been through a lot, right? Uh, but I was sitting in a contracts class with 150 other students my first year. And I had been, you know, in Zen Buddhism, there's this notion of a koan. It's a, a puzzle that you try to answer. And that's your meditation. Like, what's the sound of one hand clapping? Or what did your face look before you were born? That sort of thing. Well, my koan was, what am I going to do with my life? And I just, you know, would cycle that over and over and over, day after day after day. And I didn't go to law school because I wanted to be a lawyer. I went to law school because I had to make a living. And I, my parents' basement was not really going to be the long-term answer for that. Um, and But there I was sitting in this contracts classroom, and it was electrifying. There was a great teacher. Uh, there were all of us sitting on the edge of our seats. I was a great participator. My, my hand was always up in the air. And I just had this moment where I like floated above that classroom and I looked down on it and I looked at what was happening and I went, I got it. I know what I need to do. I want to be the guy in front of this classroom. And so then it was like, okay, how do you get to be that guy? And um, so then after that, I went to some people at law school. Anyway, how do you how do you become a law professor? Uh, and it's not easy, but there's a way. So I just put my nose to the ground and said, okay, that's the goal. And off I went, you know, did all the things you have to do to, you know, be on an academic track. I was a law clerk on the Federal Court of Appeals and, you know, whatever. Uh, and then ultimately ended up teaching in the legal studies department at the Wharton School of Business, which was not, I'd never even heard of Wharton. Uh, I, you know, I got an offer from a couple of law schools and then this Wharton School Legal Studies group. And I, uh, I interviewed and it was like category difference of facility and, and culture and excitement than most law schools. Uh, and so I went to my wife and I said, well, you know, I've got this problem, law school, Wharton School. She looked at me and said, are you kidding? That's not even close. And I said, well, what do you mean? She said, it's the Warden School, you idiot. And I got, well, what's the big deal with the Warden School? <laughs> and she said, my brother went there. It's really famous. You know, you'd be an idiot not to take that job. So like most things, when you have a good loving partner, they keep you on the right track. So I took the job at Warden and I've been there ever since. And I've loved it ever since. And, uh, and I've been that teacher that I wanted to be and invented all my courses that I teach and written books about those courses. And I just love what I do every day. So that's, that's the, that's the cook's tour. Do you, do you mind if I ask if, if you're, um, if you grew up religious? I grew up, no, I mean, I, I, I don't mind. Uh, I, I grew up in a military family and on a military basis, there's really no, there's religion, but it's kind of kind of averaged out. So there's a Protestant church and a Catholic church and a Jewish synagogue. And, you know, in my day, um, 
So I was never really raised in a quote religion as much as just Christianity, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, but it never appealed to me very much. And it was what was interesting was when I went on this journey. It was two years I was on a road, and I ultimately stumbled into religion as the subject that I kept returning to. So I lived in Israel for a while, and I read the whole Bible cover to cover, living on a kibbutz in Israel. And I walked around all the places the Bible talks about. I went down to the sea. My kibbutz was overlooking the Sea of Galilee. And so I went down there, sat up. Read the Bible. (laughs) Yeah, no, it's really real. Uh, And and then I went to um, uh, a little town in Turkey, Konya, where the whirling dervishes put on their performance every year and saw that. Uh, I met a huge number of Mormons on the road because they're all over the place, you know, proselytizing and 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 being uh, missionaries. And so I, I even read the Book of Mormon, which I'm pretty sure most Mormons haven't read, really. Uh, it's a pretty amazingly esoteric book. Uh, and then studied Hinduism when I was in India, read the Ramayana and um, a number of uh, the Bhagavad Gita. And then when I got to the Buddhist monastery, um, I was sitting, you know, it's a pretty rigorous practice. You, 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 they give you a place to stay. It's free. You only eat like a little breakfast and a little, and then a real meal, like at 1130 in the morning and the rest of the day you don't eat. And then you just walk for a half an hour, sit for an hour, walk for half an hour, sit for an hour. And they teach you the meditation that you're doing. So after about you know, three weeks of this, my knees were killing me. And, you know, it's really awkward for someone like me to be sitting like that long. So I went to the, you only get to talk for 20 minutes a day and you get to talk to your teacher. So I went to my teacher, Venerable Sivali, and I said, you know, this is great. You know, my, my knees are killing me. I'm not really sure why I'm here anymore. Do you have a book I could read, you know, on Buddhism? Uh, don't know much about it. And he looked at me, it was very, wonderful man. He's this great big like cow eyes of just compassion. And and he smiled and said, this is good. You know, uh, he said, meditate now, read later. And so I persevered and then subsequently read more about Buddhism. But he was right. Buddhism is an experiential religion. Uh, and at the end of the day, I kind of thought, the war religions in my book are like one has the best book, one has the best place to worship, and one has the best prayer. And the best book is the Bible, and the best place to worship is a mosque. If you've never been in a mosque, a mosque is so peaceful. There's no furniture. There's no, you know, there's just there's just a little nook in one place that points toward Mecca, and the rest of it is all flowers. There's not even any images of people or dogs or cats or anything. It's just 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 nature. It's just amazing. And then I think the Buddhists had the right kind of prayer, if you define prayer in a kind of be quiet way, for me, because it's not about asking for things. You know, as a, as a Christian, I was taught you pray to God for, you know, you know, whatever. Um, and Buddhism doesn't teach you to ask for things. It just teaches you to be in the moment and to let things happen to you and observe them. And for me, at least, that's what I needed. I, I really had lost myself 
And through meditation, I was able to observe the huge amount of noise going on in my head and my heart and and then just identify that there was part of me that was actually observing that and that it wasn't me that was having an aching leg. It was a leg that was aching and I was observing it. And uh, And not only that, but if you observe something like a pain in your leg carefully, um, the pain goes away and your attention wanders to something else. And while your attention is on something else, it doesn't hurt. You know, we can only focus on one thing at a time. And so the insight that, that you have that power in your mind to focus your attention is really life-changing. So, um, so it was, it was a big thing about religion, but, uh, you know, subsequently, I've I've come to understand I'm a deeply spiritual person. Yeah, I could and, I could tell in the language you use to describe real your realization about what you wanted to do with your life. You said you use the words transcended above this classroom, and like you I you had a realization in the moment of what was going on. So I I kind of got that from from yeah. the way you were describing that. Yeah, I'm anti-religious. I'm anti-authoritarian. I think I think mm-hmm. I just have a fundamental oppositional part of my my temperament, but, but spiritually, uh, I'm, I like to investigate. I consider myself a student. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious about just like what you think these experiences in these different religions and taking that time away, like kind of for yourself, uh, what that was like for you and how that's impacted you. Oh, it, it was the most difficult and the most important part of my life. Um, if you think of, um, like life as a series of inputs and outputs, you know, you, you learn things, then you teach things. Um, and I learned more in those two years than I even knew. Mm. Um, it, it, the, the things I learned subsequently have come into focus, in ways that they weren't in focus when I was experiencing them. I'll give you a, I'll give you an example. So I kept a journal. So everywhere I went, I had this a, a series of journals, um, and just I would sit in a cafe or in the, the you know youth hostel living room or something and just write, 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 because I had this mantra I was trying to figure out: What am I going to do? What am I going to do? What am I going to do? And um, so at one point, I actually I kept them all. Um, and I now have them in a closet in my house. Um, I sent them to the person who I subsequently married, who I met in college, and she preserved them. So, um, so then when it came, you know, along the way, when I've done certain things, those journals became important to review. And uh, at one point, um, about you know, year and a couple months into this whole thing, I made a list, all the things that I could do. And then another list, all the things I could never do. So on the list of things I could do, I'd majored in English in college. I studied Shakespeare. My brother-in-law was a Shakespeare professor at the University of Virginia. And top of the list of things I could do was get a PhD in English and teach Shakespeare. Hmm. And then under that was be a journalist. And, you know, under that was maybe be a carpenter, you know, and there were just like things that I had the abilities I thought to do. And then at the top of the list of things I could never do was teach in a business school. Hmm. 
because I'm terrible at math. I mean, I'm almost like got a math disability. Uh, I got on my SATs, I got a 500, uh, which these days would sink an application to almost any reputable school. Um, so, so I had already ruled out that which I had made my life's work, which teaches you and teaches me a lot of humility about what happens to people. It's not about a plan. It's about, I, I like to make the analogy, it's sort of like in hockey, ice hockey. I don't know if you guys are interested in ice hockey. It's sort of the same for soccer. Um, how do you score in ice hockey? You shoot at the goal, and then you see what happens. And when you're shooting at the goal, good things happen. That's essentially the whole thing. Yeah, <laughs> so, I mean you know, I just kept shooting. <laughs> yeah, there's there's such a a relevant metaphor in that too. And I've heard that actual metaphor used in another context, and it was being used to describe. I, I don't know if you're familiar with like the root of the word sin, but the like old, old uh translation, and I forget what the root word is, so I may have to look it up after this just so I can remember. But it Tr the translation means to miss the mark. So uh -huh. it, it implies a very um, aim based, you know, but yeah, it's just this very interesting interplay between the way we use words of like, you know, and I would say to a certain degree, you know, your path can very well be described as, you know, you know, I'm not going to pinpoint it into one religion, but a very religious path of you seeing a future version of yourself, this professor that you wanted to be, and you saw that out there in the future, and you took aim at that, and you continued to shoot at that target that what you had in your in your personal life. But of course, there's going to be misses along the way. But by continuing to shoot and continuing to engage with that future version of yourself that you were aspiring to be, eventually you were able to get there. But yeah, it's just a uh, the aim, the target, like we're human beings are just such natural aiming animals. Yeah. Yeah. But, we're evolutionary wise, but you know right. what the, what the root of the word happiness is? Oh no. What's mm -hmm. that? Luck. Oh, hmm. <laughs> hap is a, like an ancient Aryan word for luck. Wow. Uh, and, um, you know, it's a, the, the, with somebody, I can't remember who, maybe it was Dale Carnegie said something along the lines of success is getting what you want. Happiness is wanting what you get. Mm. <laughs> and, and, uh, and the, um, I knew I wanted to be a teacher finally, but I had to be mature enough and self-aware enough to know that, 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 that echo that I'd sent out to the world when it came back that it was a true sound. Uh, and I think uh, a lot of people don't have that maturity when they set their goals, and then they end up chasing stuff that isn't really worthwhile or worth their time. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, they want glamor, they want celebrity, they want wealth, they want power, they want, they want to be someone that they admire or that is admired, you know, like uh, they're an influencer on Instagram or something. Um, and they don't have the maturity to know that that's not what they should be doing. Mm -hmm. And that if they were better at looking inside and assessing, you know, their talents and their passions and their emotions and their 
um, and their their sort of value add to the world. Um, th- th- that their their aiming device would be better focused. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then it's trial and error. You know, you 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 send them you send the beam out there and no echo. Well, that's interesting. So that's not going to work. Uh, and then you send the beam out there and you get a little echo. You said, well, that's better. Let's try a little of that. And then in my case, I sent the beam out there and this blast came back saying yes. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, and uh, but I was, you know, I was in, I was beyond thirty-five. You know, I mean, it it was, uh, it took a while. Yeah, yeah. So you started law school. You had this plan of becoming a professor, and then you took the job at Wharton. And was this specifically in like the legal studies department? Yep. So what and- were some of the first classes? Uh, we teach we teach business law, so we teach contracts, corporations, um, um, uh, startup business uh, planning for you know legal stuff. Uh, we also teach business ethics. Uh, we didn't at the time I joined the department. We do now, and so there's a lot of stuff that we teach that has a more values related component to it in our department. Um, the beauty I've also taught at law schools as it, you know, later I've been invited to teach at law schools and the beauty of teaching in a business school comparatively to a law school when you're a lawyer as I am, or I'm fully recovered now, but I was, I was once upon a time, um, is that you're teaching, it's like you're teaching the captain of the ship, what they need to know about the engine room, as opposed to teaching the engineers how to run the boilers. And law school professors really have a responsibility to teach that tax code so that they send people out and they know the difference between subsection B, you know, subsection C and subsection D. But that's not what we have to teach in the Wharton School. We just have to make sure that these people who are going to be leaders know how lawyers think and what legal risk is and how you assess it and how to listen to and question lawyers so that you get good advice. And it's much more strategic, which is much a friendlier place for me. Uh, and um, so that's uh, so. In the end, you know, it's all luck. I ended up at the perfect place for me. Not only that, but I get to teach undergraduates because the Wharton School has a big undergraduate business program. That's what it started with in 1881, and the MBA program came along in like the 1930s. And teaching undergraduates is you know, and getting paid the way a law school professor gets paid, that's like a sweet spot. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, you're not the the philosophy professor who's living like a church mouse, teaching great thoughts to your undergrads. You get to teach the same great thoughts, but get paid better. So I like that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so you're kind of going through this process. Um, I'm kind of curious about what went into the start of writing books for you sure. in that process? Yeah, yeah. Well, I, for the first six years as a professor, you have to hunker down. <clears throat> it's about getting tenure because without tenure, game over. And I had a family, and so I just, I just, you know, I'm pretty good at figuring out if there's a game to play, how do you win it? And uh, so I just hunkered down and wrote articles and did what I had to do to get the tenure. Once I got tenure, then, of course, there's another hurdle. You have to, you know, you're associate professor. You want to be a full professor. So there's one more little rung there to get you into senior partner land in a 
academic sense. So I hunkered down and did uh, the part that I needed to do to get full professor. Then once you're full professor, then there's no more things to get. So then you do what you want to do. And that's when I started writing books. Um, and the first book I wrote was about negotiation. Uh, and, and there's a theme in everything I've written. I've written five books. And this last one, The Conscience Code, is right on the, it's right on the thread. It, it's very, if, you know, you wouldn't know this except if you listen to this podcast, but it's very Buddhist. Mm. Because everything I've written has been about self-awareness. And I wrote a negotiation book to teach people how to be self-aware negotiators. So it's not about tactics. It's about who are you and how can you be the best negotiator you can be by understanding that you're really a nice person and that grabbing and grasping is not like your favorite thing to do. So then how do you use those relationship skills to negotiate effectively? Or maybe you're really competitive and you love to win and you love the energy and all that. So how do you use that competition energy to negotiate effectively? Because you can overdo that and people, you know, don't like you. And then you have screwed up the relationship. So, you know, the negotiation book came out of a negotiation course. So every Most academics do research and write books. I create courses and write books <laughs> because I'm a teacher. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I'm, I do research, but I don't do research the way Angela Duckworth does research. Uh, when she wrote Grit, she has all these studies and, you know, social psych lab and, you know, all this regression analysis. Remember, I can't do math. So I'm a humanist. I'm, I'm like the resident humanist on a 250 person business faculty. Uh, and so, so I teach you, I figure out what's a course that I could teach. And then I teach it. So negotiation was a course. I'd done been a lawyer and there wasn't a course. And uh, and so I and there are courses that were in law school. So I embedded the negotiation course. And then I taught it for a while. I learned what I what I could say. I, you know, there's there's a wonderful uh, saying that um, a novelist once wrote. He said, How do I know what I think till I see what I say? Mm. And it, when you're a teacher, you get the chance to listen to yourself answer questions, investigate, be wrong, get better. And especially if you teach a course for three or four years, you kind of get the picture of what there is to say about something. Then I write a book. So negotiation, uh, wrote a book on law and strategy, teaching a course on law and strategy at Wharton. Then, but even that is self-awareness about uh, what kind of a um, risk taker are you? in terms of litigation risk and how you manage that sort of part. Then a book on persuasion and influence, which is a very deeply interpersonal psychological uh, credibility thing and it connects to negotiation. Uh, and then a book on success, um, it's called Springboard, launching a personal search for success. That's where I brought back my own story and how I discovered what I needed to do. And that book's really about something I call meaningful work. Um, you know, how do you find work that's going to get you up in the morning? And in the end, I sort of find the, the, the sweet spot for that is find three things that overlap. Some, do something that'll pay you, do something that excites you, and do something that you're good at. Good at meaning better than most, not the best in the world, 
better than most. And when you find something that you're better than most at doing, you really like doing it, and it pays pretty well or it pays enough, you're going to get better and better and better and better at doing that because you're going to love doing it. And you're going to get rewarded for doing it. So lots of positive feedback. And so meaningful work is so when those three things come together and, you know, in each individual, they're going to be different. And it, people mistake vocations, I think, as being work that someone else thinks is meaningful, like be a preacher or, you know, um, be a member of the military or be a police officer or a nurse or something. And it, it Meaningful work is not about the work. Meaningful work is about the meaning you bring to the work. And, uh, and so you can have a janitor in a hospital who's doing meaningful work. And the team member who's a janitor on the different floor has got a job and not meaningful work. And the reason is that the first janitor has a mission that they're accomplishing, that their daughter was cured by the doctors in this hospital, that they feel a sense of mission in keeping the place clean so that the people can do their work and they give comfort to people they see in the hallways. And you know, you've all met people like that. Mm-hmm. There are people who shine out of themselves, whatever they do. And um, so, so that book's about meaningful work. And then this last book, The Conscience Code, is about values and standing up for values that make life meaningful. Values like dignity, honesty, um, fairness, compassion. And these, these things are not, they have to be defended. It, it doesn't work if you say, well, that's somebody else's problem to keep everybody honest. It's everybody's job to stand up for their own values. And so this book is about using things like negotiation and persuasion and influence when you have a conflict over values uh, with a boss or a peer and you need to stand up and speak truth to whatever it is that's opposing it. Yeah. Brennan and I were talking about this before of like, we really enjoy this idea of really staying connected to your values and learning more about your story. Like you said, it's just like so significant in your life and your life story. Um, and so before we get into the book, I'm curious about like, you touched on how you think it was part of your temperament that like really sticking true to your values, but what, what, what else do you think it was about that time of when you like really made that decision to, to really focus on like being a pacifist, stepping away from this, um, making that really hard decision. Like, how are you able to kind of go through that and really stick to your values? Very hard. Um, you know, Humans are social animals. And so up to the time, I was on a Navy ROTC scholarship. It wasn't just that my parents were military and my grandparents were military and my sister had married a military officer. And I was, you know, I, I had negotiated my way not to have to go to Annapolis, to Naval Academy or West Point, because my dad had gone to the Virginia Military Institute. And uh, you know, there was, it, it was like a concession that I got to go to a regular college on a Navy scholarship. Um, and, but I won the scholarship. So they really, you know, they, they sort of said, okay. But what happened was that when I got into college, I got away from that pool, you know, that pool of meaning that 
and culture that I'd grown up in and really got out of it for the first time. And I was, I was content enough with the military part of my college life. I was on the drill team and I spent a summer in Norfolk, Virginia, you know, knocking rust off anchor chains and uh, flew, uh, you know, P3 uh, missions, uh, anti-submarine warfare down in Florida. And I was doing it, you know, it was, I was okay with it. But then the Vietnam War, it's, it's a little like Black Lives Matter now in a cultural sense. The Vietnam War just exploded when I was a junior in college. We invaded Cambodia. Uh, there were protests all over the country. The entire understanding of what it meant to be someone of, of character changed. And all the Vietnam veterans were coming back saying this war is, is, is pointless. You know, they, they, they were totally uh, disengaged from what they were being asked to do. A lot of them were coming back as drug addicts. And, and, um, and so there I was, you know, all of a sudden, and I was just caught with this, different, radically different vision of what my duty was. And I just couldn't see, I mean, my, my, my father had, I think, instilled in me a sense of duty. And so the conflict was, well, duty to, you know, the country and through the being a military officer. But then at that point, all of a sudden, this prism shifted and duty was duty to protest this immoral war because it was doing not it was doing nothing but causing misery damage and um and even negative things for the america uh and yet we were still being ordered to go over there and and bomb the vietnamese people and so you know i just had to weigh which of these duties really was the duty my generation had you know, my, my dad is, my dad was, I, I, it was Pearl Harbor, you know, I mean, they, they were, there was a surprise attack by the Japanese on the American base in Pearl Harbor. It's a no brainer that you have to go to war. <laughs> um, and I don't know what I would have done in those situations. It's a different era, different, different decision. But, but in the, in the place I found myself, a pacifist response seemed to be uh, the right answer. Now, I would say for me, the big uh, values conflict after I got over the fact that, okay, I'm going to not go to Vietnam, uh, now what? <laughs> and the big conflict is, well, I could either go to Canada and leave the country, which was a, a lot of people in my generation did do that, and that you just simply left the country and you were a draft resistor and you were behaving illegally, but they didn't come get you in Canada or become a pacifist, which was uh, play within the rules that are set up. And that means I became a conscientious objector. The draft board reviewed my case. They agreed with me that I was a pacifist. And then I did two years of alternative service instead of the military where I worked in Washington as a social worker. I mean, that's what it turned out I did. You have to sort of find your own thing. But people worked in mental hospitals. People work in all kinds of different compassionate work. <clears throat> and I, I couldn't see leaving the country. Um, but I really wasn't completely convinced I was a pacifist either. I mean, I'd been in a military family for my entire life. But 
but I I went back and I, I I worked with the Quakers. They're a very strong Christian pacifist tradition. I reread the New Testament and noticed, at least as I read it, that Jesus was a pacifist uh, and that he was against violence and uh, and that um, whenever they tried to make him like you know a king. You know, they wanted the Jews were looking for a Messiah that would come over and throw the Romans out. And, and Jesus said, no, not really what I'm about, you know. Uh, and so I took some comfort from that. And um, and then that's the path I took. So it wasn't, wasn't without a huge amount of ambivalence. I don't think I had full certainty. I just knew I was on the right side of the line. Okay. And then in that same series of events what was the original uh like trigger for you to go and live with the buddhists well that was <laughs> um i was on this spiritual kind of quest i'd already read the whole bible <laughs> and lived in israel and um okay actually let, I, let me backtrack one one step i i guess i'm curious also what triggered the international push how did you go overseas mm-hmm. to and then yeah. get immersed in all of this spiritual journey that you were on? Yeah, that, I mean that that was kind of a, a moment where I, I decided it was incremental. I I um, I decided I would I would leave the country. I'd finished being a house painter. I'd saved three thousand dollars, and I just decided I could get some perspective if I just went to Greece. Because I'd been to Greece as a high, you know, between high school and college, I'd, I'd hitchhiked around Europe a little, and I Greece was a kind of a place that resonated. So I just decided I'd take like a two month vacation, go to Greece, um, and then when I got there, uh, I uh, you start hearing things from people who are traveling. So the world travelers are like this huge network, and so you get to a youth hostel and you kind of are coming from someplace and you don't know where you're going to go next. And so all the other people are coming from someplace. And so you say, well, how, how is it in X, Y, and Z? And they tell you, you know, well, that hash is good, that, you know, it's free to stay here and whatever. Uh, and so I got to Istanbul uh, and which is, you know, the other side of Greece, but not far. And I was staying in this place near the blue mosque and I ran into this guy who said, hey, you know, the really cool thing to do is to go to Israel and work on a kibbutz. But you got to do it for a long time. You got to live there for months, you know? And I went, oh, goodness. Um, well, that's interesting. And then I thought to myself, do I have anything I'm going home to? Answer, no. Do I have anything that I'm going toward? Answer, no. Well, then I might just as well do the next good thing that someone suggested is a good idea. And so I went to Israel and, um, and then I just, it was amazing how little effort it took. I had a girlfriend at the time. I wrote her a letter and said, you can have my car. Uh, uh, I wrote a letter to my landlord and said, I won't be coming back to take my leads. Uh, I think it, it took a total of like five letters and I was completely free. I, huh. you know, I just, it was like, I was a puppet and I just went click, snip, 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 all the strings gone. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then from then on, it was, okay, I, here I am. What am I going to do next? And, and I just absorbed my community of world travelers and began reading 
and writing my journals. And I just made a commitment to myself. I'm not going to go home till I figured it out. I need to know why I'm going home. And then you already mentioned a, a fair amount of the story when you were with the monks, but when you, when you got, did somebody at, in your travels through Israel, then lead you down same way you were negotiating these different locations before. And then you end up at this, um, Buddhist monastery. How, what did that, what did, what grabbed you in that oh. experience? <clears throat> I, you know, just follow your nose. I, you know, I finished, I, I heard, and when I was in Israel, I heard that there was a bus you could take from Istanbul to New Delhi. It was called the Magic Bus. Uh, it left every day. It cost $35 for the whole ticket. And you could get it off it anywhere you wanted. And the next day, get on the next Magic Bus coming through. And so I, the Magic Bus uh, was a pretty good idea. So I went you know, all the way across Turkey, all the way across uh, Afghanistan, all the way down into, you know, the Khyber Pass, all the way down. And, and you got to remember, everywhere along the way, I'm listening to what people are telling me about what's down the road. You know, if you want to find out what's down the road, you just talk to people who've been there. And eventually, I talked to some people. I was in a bird sanctuary south of uh, New Delhi, a wonderful place called Bharatpur. It's an incredible place. Um, and some people were there and around the campfire, they said, you know, there's this amazing Buddhist monastery in Sri Lanka. Uh, and so I kind of went, Hmm, that sounds interesting. Uh, I just filed it away. I'd met a Dutch guy. We were traveling in a car that he'd driven all the way from Holland to India and we were just camping. Uh, and then when that guy decided he wanted to go one way and I want to go another, I kind of went, Oh, let's try the Buddhist monastery. So so, you know, I, I went in, I was very anxious about it. Very, very anxious. It was, I knew nothing about it. I wasn't even sure I'd get in, you know? So I just made my way there. And uh, in fact, the first, when I went there the first time, it was outside of uh, Kandy, the, uh, one of the big cities in the middle of Sri Lanka. And I said, I've heard that you'll let a Western person study here. Uh, and they said, oh, sorry, there's no room. Uh, and I went, oh, well, tell me how, how it works. So, you know, they explained what was going on. And I said, well, um, you know, I'll come back. Um, and so I waited a few days, went back. And the next time I went back, they looked at me and maybe they thought I really wanted to do it. And they let me in. Uh, and then it was, you know, you learn that, that you eat with the monks, you uh, chant with the monks, you do your meditation. Um, it's hard, uh, and um, you get into the into the rhythm of a very simple life. The big part of the day, they had a in the middle of the monastery. There was a well, and you walk down into it. It's sort of like you might, you know, like Rachel in the well in the Bible. You know, it's one of these like center of town ancient wells. You walk down. It's a spring coming out of the of the ground, and they were buckets, and you would. It was cool water and hot weather. Best part of the day was you go down and get a big bucket of cold water and just pour it on your head. And when you're meditating, everything is so clear. Every experience is so vivid because your attention is like on what's happening. And oh, just, you know, it's like 
every day was a baptism. Uh, you know, your spirit was cleansed. Uh, the, um, so, you know, then, then, uh, then I, I think I got to a point where it was a time to move on from there. So I decided I would do a little pilgrimage. So I went around to the different places where the Buddha had done stuff in India. Nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because I mean, your, your story, I mean, from the minute, the, from the moments that we've collected in just in this brief conversation, I mean, you're sticking with your values and everything that you had to do when you, you know, became a conscious, conscientious objector, you know, the spiritual journey and, you know, like finding your path through and discovering all of these like religions, which in a big part are a lot of what lends itself to like modern ethical ideals come from the religious structures of all types of religion. So, you know, like, as we look at your, your new book, the conscious code, I think it's really fascinating to hear about how, and just understanding the fact that all of your books are tied together with this common Buddhist thread. I think it's really fascinating to hear about how you became so ingrained with this like belief throughout your life. It's been, it's been quite a journey. You've got a a pretty remarkable story and and set of experiences. So um, Uh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I would, I just interrupt for one moment. Yeah. Because I think at the end of the day, the thing I actually learned the most was that there's nothing more important than family. Mm. Because when I came home, I finally, a Buddhist monk, a Buddhist Zen master asked me to be a monk in Korea. It, It was like, Hey, you know, we'd welcome you to take a vow and join the community. And I kind of went, whoa, you know, and, but I realized I hadn't reconciled with my family, that that was the missing link. So, so I went back home and I knocked on their door and they let me in. They loved me. They, they, we, you know, they were unconditionally behind me. And I just realized that they had never stopped loving me. I had just had a lot of stuff in the way of loving them. And so, you know, the years I I spent two more years living in their basement, selling insulation and doing all this other stuff. The years I spent, again, in late 20s, I mean, most people are like, you know, they think they're late to the party uh, because they haven't made their billion dollars yet. And here I am living in the basement of my parents' house. But they were were just as important as everything else. Because at the end of the day, I got to know my mom and dad. I got to actually know them and embrace them and love them. And I was with each of them the moment they died, years later, separately. And I wouldn't trade that for anything. That, that um, return, you know, that connection. Um, and um, so, so the values that are embedded in the conscience code are really the values that are not just independence and, and, and exploration, they're connection values, you know? And, uh, and I think all your values come from connection with others. Yeah, and like you were saying, it kind of starts with that self-awareness piece. And I'm curious if that is maybe what a lot of you saw, or maybe there was a lack thereof in like the fields that you were working in as you started to become a professor. And did you kind of see that as like a huge problem, maybe that there was just a lot of lack of self-awareness in this process? Absolutely. That's a great, that's a great comment, especially at a place like the Wharton School. You know, I mean, we have 
some famous alums at the Wharton School. Donald Trump went to the Wharton School. Michael Milken went to the Wharton School. We have more alums, I think, who've been indicted in jail for insider trading than any other major business school. Um, and it's famous for its connection to finance, which is a kind of a Wall Street-ish uh, track. Now, there are a lot of wonderful people on the faculty and in the student body. Uh, they're very smart. Um, and um, and it's been, I've learned more, you know, being part of this community than I could have learned almost anywhere else. But I bring something uh, it's a, like a reminder to my students and my colleagues that values are first. Uh, if you're, you know, it doesn't matter how well you accomplish a goal if the goal is the wrong goal. And I think it's often the case that people don't actually think very hard about what the goal is. They just, if they're competitive, they set up a game they want to win. And, you know, they could have a game, cure world hunger. But instead, they have a game by the biggest house in Boca Raton. Um, and, um, I, you know, it's okay to have a big house in Boca Raton. I don't have anything against it. But it's, it's not very thoughtful, uh, you know, in the context of how you want to use your life. I mean, at the end of the day, we each only have a certain number of days on the planet. Whatever you think about the afterlife, we don't get to come back. There's only one guy who got to do that. And, uh, and so... So I think how you use your time, I mean, there's a wonderful metaphor. How do you spend your time? Uh, because you don't get it back. Once you spend it, it's gone. And so I try to remind everything I teach, if it's negotiation, what are you negotiating for? What are your real interests and what are your priorities? And let's get them straight, you know, not just uh, here's a cardinal order ranking of money, power, loyalty, you know. Uh, and if you want to influence, can you influence for good? Can you use your influence for good? Uh, as you conceive the good, I, I, I'm very agnostic about what the good is. I think people have to do their own work on that. I'm not going to tell them what that is. But if they're doing their due diligence on what the good is, then I want to help them. Uh, and I've got a fair amount of knowledge about how to get things done. Uh, and I've done a lot of research and written some books on the subject. So, um, you know, and, and the schools recognize that. I, I was in charge of the last um, two-year process to redesign the whole MBA program. Well, they wouldn't have given me that job if they didn't think I could do it. Uh, and it's a pretty important piece of work for a major business school to revamp its entire curriculum. Uh, so... Um, so they gave some confidence to me in my ability to execute. Uh, but part of my goal in running that process was let's get the goals right. Let's figure out how uh, what's worth doing. So that new design that we created has individual coaching for each of the MBA students so they can think more carefully about what their leadership journey should be. Uh, it has a lot of choices for students on what courses to take through the curriculum so they can navigate kind of their own adventure instead of setting like here's six courses, you've got to take them all and you've got to take them all in the first six weeks. You know, uh, we, we got students average age of 28. Let's, let's let them like use their intelligence to craft an education out of what this amazing institution has to offer. So, so my, um, my, my experience, you know, is 
comes into play in an institutional way too, by virtue of having those values be part of how I try to make decisions. Yeah, I was going to say definitely coming back into like our Western culture and society with kind of its emphasis on like what this idea of success is um, and maybe neglecting these values sometimes it's, I could see how your contribution was so effective and important, uh, especially at that time. And it's, it's beautiful to see how it's kind of carried on and how you've been able to like really craft these, um, some of these courses in this program. Um, and so now moving into most recent book, Conscious Code, I kind of just want to start first with like, why the conscience? Like, why did you really want to highlight the conscience? Um, most business, I'm, I'm in a department called Legal Studies and Business Ethics. And we have a whole group of people that are philosophers as well as lawyers. And, um, and, and most business ethics in a business school uh, concerns itself with very difficult problems where there's a lot of ambiguity about what the right thing to do is, you know, and then you're, you know, you're in a foreign country and, and they treat women a certain way. What's your duty as a company to, you know, do this or do that? Um, so a lot of it is very deep philosophical and sort of, you know, analysis about, you know, how to solve these very difficult problems. I'm a much more practical person than that. And it seems to me like for the average employee or manager, they know what the right thing to do is. That's really not that hard. You know, there's a, there's a, a guy who's hitting on all the summer interns. That's not right. Uh, you don't need to do a philosophy course to figure that out. And, but, but they may not know what to do about it. Um, and so my cut on this subject was, all right, let's just assume for the most part, you know what the right thing to do is, but you've got an organizational matrix or career risk or reputation risk, or you know, you have to support a family with health care and they may fire you if you do this the wrong way. You know, some serious stuff going on. How do you get the right thing done when you know what the right thing is? So the conscience code is the conscience code because at my starter kit level, you just have to listen to your conscience and you'll know whether you have a duty to act most of the time. I mean, there, there's going to be some fuzzy cases, but in the process of going through the book, anyone would read it, who would read it would see that I've got lots of safety valves built in so that you consult with other people before you launch you know, on the basis of your own individual conscience, if you have time to do that. So, so, so the, the conscience, I think, is sort of essentially an intuitive guide that comes from our basic sense of right and wrong that's instilled in most of us by our families and our religions and our, our communities. And the problem is bringing them to work because the pressures of work are kind of leave all that at home, make money. And actually, no, don't leave all those at home. Uh, because if you do, you're going to be essentially working for a psychopathic institution that's going to hurt people one way or the other. They'll hurt the customer by creating products that hurt them. They'll hurt their employees by having um, uh, practices that injure their well-being and harm their mental health. Uh, they'll have management um, 
leadership models that will hurt the people by uh, ending up in the end with them having lifetimes of regret instead of pride for what they've done. Uh, and so the conscience code is, is about that problem. Uh, and there's 10 rules and there's four steps. I mean, I've, I'm really good at frameworks. So I've got it. It's like really easy to remember. Uh, and, and it's practical. You know, here's the situation. Okay, instead of just launching or running away, what do we do? Uh, and I've, you know, like four steps, like observe what's happening, own the problem, take responsibility for it, decide it, you know, it's your duty to act, then survey the options and talk to someone else. Don't do it alone. Never, never do it alone, which is the biggest mistake people make in ethical conflicts is they get this isolated feeling and it overwhelms them. So consult about the options and then take action based on the best option, and then see what happens and start over. So, you know, it's not a one-move game. Most ethical conflicts in organizations are going to be multi-stepped. They're going to involve more than one conversation, more than one person to consult. So this, you know, observe, own, decide, act, adjust. And once you sort of kick into, oh, there's an action plan. Let's, I've got my conscience. I know the direction I'm headed. Now let's do this. Then I think your sense of competency kicks in and, you know, you're going to be proud of how you handled it. You may not win. You may not win. You may be up against uh, more power than you can summon to oppose it. And you may have to quit or you may have to, you know, leave that unit and go somewhere else or whatever. But at least when it's over, you'll say, I did my best. I didn't hide. Yeah, I, I mean, it, it goes back to identity, which is my Buddhist thing, because I, I think at the end of the day, we we do stuff and then we have to live with it. Right. Yeah, I was going to say, I feel like I've heard several experiences of people um, kind of maybe conforming to the culture and then being like, that wasn't who I was. Exactly. Uh, yeah. 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 You You hear that a lot. After the fact, people say stuff as if they weren't there. They go, who was I when I was doing that? Mm. How could I think that? How could I do that? You know, it's a little bit, you guys ever uh, watched a tennis match? Mm -hmm. So, you know, almost all tennis players talk to themselves. And some of them talk out loud. And so it's so funny to sit there watching a tennis match and you hear this one guy yelling, going, you idiot, you know, you should have hit the backhand to the forehand, you know, and they, you're going, who the heck are they talking to? Yeah. They're talking to themselves, you know, and I think when it comes to, you know, real important ethical kinds of conflicts, you know, that's what happens. You talk to yourself uh, and what you don't realize is that if you get it wrong, you're going to talk to yourself that way for the rest of your life. Mm. And it's just too high a price to pay. Mm -hmm. You know, it's worth the effort to get it right. Yeah. Well, and the thing I love about the framework and the code that you put forth is that I think one of the big things with that identity piece that you were mentioning is that, um, you know, personal responsibility for like the actions that one takes in their life is like something I think most people know that they have to ha like have and engage with. But I think it's really difficult to know how to do that sometimes. I think when, when we're in the face of conflict, Sometimes it's not easy 
to understand that, that that's the conflict right in front of you and that you have you have to act a particular way but i think that that's the great thing about the code is it gives people the confidence to know that they can stand up for the and take personal responsibility for the situation and follow their values in a way that isn't going to have some major negative repercussion on them and i think you know and i'm sure it relates back to your your previous book um but like that's that's a growth like the growth that would come from doing that is a compounding like piece mm-hmm. of success for oneself. Yeah. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Like, this, yeah. the second time you've grown more than the first time and the third time you grow even more and just, yeah. So I think that's such a, a powerful tool for people to have in their tool belt, to be able to have like a, a framework to lean on their values and have confidence in themselves to make an ethical decision when things get tough. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and you're absolutely right. Everything in life that's hard requires practice and, um, and standing up in conflicts is just another example. And if you do, if you have the courage to do it, you don't have to be a hero, you know, but you've got a framework. So you're taking incremental steps, you know, and you're being thoughtful and you're not doing it alone. The, if you get it right, you, your confidence in yourself as a person of conscience, right up. And then the next time you're more willing to engage. And then if the stakes get higher, you're still willing to engage. And, 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 and the other thing is true too. You come up to this conflict and you shy away from it. Well, now your conf- your confidence in next time is much worse. And, you know, it's so much easier to just shy away again. And then, and so it really is a test. Um, now there's a reason why, um, uh, People in religion, like the religious community, um, you go to church every week. It's not like once a year. And the reason that you do it once a week, or even for some people every day, is you need to renew your vow. <laughs> you know, it's hard to do the right thing. Uh, there's an angel on both shoulders, and you know, you're. It's not a one and done. You know, you're not a good person or a bad person. You're a person, and you have to make moral decisions. <laughs> Right. And so making them in the right way gives you the confidence to do better next time. It's absolutely true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think highlighting that has been really helpful for me and in, in listening to other podcasts that you've done and, and learning more about this book of that idea of like, which we've talked about a lot too, is the idea of cognitive dissonance leading to this. It's, I think it's so interesting to, to think about how we will experience that we're willing to experience that immediate kind of suffering with the cognitive dissonance to maybe prolong or delay like a greater suffering um, instead of taking this approach of, okay, I need to sit in this conflict, kind of understand what's going on and then maybe make the decision that will have the longer term benefits. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a little like um, um, you got to use car. And it needs to be repaired, but it's still running. So you delay the repair. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> then pretty soon it breaks at Holy the God. worst possible moment, and you don't have a car anymore. So you know it's it's your your soul requires maintenance, <laughs> uh, and it's every time you make a decision not to speak your values you're injuring your soul. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, you know, the, the opposite I would say is like the idea of 
choosing to take the proper make the proper sacrifices for mm -hmm. yourself and I, I mean the whole idea behind sacrifice is that you're delaying something in the moment for a promise of something better in the future and that's exactly what following this i mean you everybody who has a conflict in front of them who's got the opportunity to either you know it, for this conversation follow this conscious code that we have in front of us to do the right thing or just say it's easy to not want to engage in this. I'm just going to step back into the corner and not do anything and just let it happen the way it's going to happen. Well, like that's easy, but it's again, that long-term, um, you know, benefit to the person is completely missed out. And when you make the proper sacrifices, you get the benefit and the growth that we were just talking about in the future. So yeah, yeah it's, it's a cost, but it's a cost too. I think the thing that people underestimate is the cost, um, the, the, uh, the regret, the remorse, um, I, I had a student, I, you know, I, I, this, this book's based on a course too. It's a course I call, teach called responsibility. Uh, and I asked students to bring me stories and examples of their own lives of moments they've gotten it right and moments where they haven't. Everybody's had both. And this one woman told a terrific story that I think is just the right way to think about it. She was a young person uh, in a, she was part of an evangelical community uh, and she, uh, her family was a, in part of this very important part of this church that she belonged to. And, um, and she had a, a, a male friend who was gay and the church disapproved of his sexual orientation. And when they found out about it, they banished him. And she she had this terrible conflict because for her to support her friend would mean she'd have to break with her family and her faith as she understood it. Um, and so she, at the time of her life, when she had this happen, she didn't have the strength to do that. And she abandoned the friend as everybody else in her church had done. But it wasn't too long before she realized that she'd made a mistake. And... Um, and there wasn't anything she could do to make up for it. But as she told the story, she said that I have devoted uh, my life in some part to helping the LGBT community and to standing up for them when they feel discrimination and been their ally and supporter in organizational settings where this has come up. And so she took her remorse and transformed it into motivation to help. Uh, and so sometimes there's a kind of redemption that can come from not stepping up if you process it the right way and you're able to uh, create a pathway for yourself where you're part of the answer of the problem that you dodged earlier. Mm -hmm. uh, and that takes some soul searching to be able to do, but, uh, but it's one way people find priorities uh, of values in their lives, the ones you're going to spend time on is one where I didn't do the job I could have done in the past. And now I'm going to make up for it. Yeah. It's not like all things are said and done. Like right. There is, you can still commit to your values. You can still make these decisions and move forward. Yeah. We all make mistakes and we all, we all come to realize and understand things differently at different times in our lives. So it's not even a mistake. You just didn't understand. Uh, but, um, but if you're introspective, if you're a person of conscience, you are uh, setting your values at a high level on your priority scheme of trying to get them right, 
then uh, then there's there's chances always always they, they, as long as you're alive there's a chance for you to do good yeah mm-hmm. yeah and so we were hoping to kind of highlight some of the chapters um, and I, I think just starting with the first being own the conflict uh, I know that we've kind of touched on it thus far but I was hoping that you could kind of expand on on what that's all about and why I guess you chose to start there too yeah, I mean, a lot of this comes from my students. I mean, they they kind of taught me about the modern workplace because the MBA students are coming out of usually three to five to eight years of work before they start an MBA program. And so they've, a lot of them, gone through some pretty serious uh, conflicts. Um, and since I encourage them to tell me about them, uh, that that uh, is, I'm sort of trying to write a book answering their sort of uh, call to me. And the first thing that most of them get wrong is they don't, uh, they don't lean into the conflict. They run away. Uh, and so it seemed to me that's the place to start because it's the first temptation. Uh, you, you, know, you just kind of start your rationalization process, kicks in going, well, it's not really my job, and maybe it really didn't happen, and there's probably more points of view, and you know, yada, 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 to, to, give, to let you do the thing which you want to do, which is to turn, turn away. Uh, so I think the first thing is you know, observe, which means to see, be, be honest enough to see, yes, this guy is hitting on these interns. This is not... I'm, and I'm not making this up. And you may need to consult a little, but this is real. Uh, so I think you have to start there uh, as opposed to going to look for trouble. I don't believe in looking for trouble. I think there's enough trouble. They'll find you. Uh, so, uh, so that's why you got you to gotta see with your eyes. Uh, and then the rest of it kicks in from there. You may decide to do nothing strategically. I mean, there may be a reason why you save your fire for a greater example of the wrong that will bring about real change instead of shooting at this little target over here that uh, may not be the best place to start a campaign. But, uh, but you, you're, you're on the track if you can see the conflicts there. So that's got to be number one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this, I don't think anybody's ever said it in, or at least it's not something I've ever heard is that like, we, we all know the right decision, like, right. Like our, our gut is telling us one way. And that's why we maybe feel this other way of like, Oh, I don't know like what I should do because yeah, it's tough. Um, but I, I think this piece about the consultation is so important and it's something that's been very valuable in, um, my work as a trainee in clinical psychology of like, if I feel any type of decision that I feel like is greater or out of my scope like i consult and i i know that i think i know the right decision but still i think i need that extra support in that sense and maybe somebody else uh is reflection of like what their gut instinct is as well and it is um something that i've relied on and that i go to constantly and i've been very appreciative of like a collaborative environment to do that in a work setting uh which has been very supportive, like a very focused team setting has been super important in that process. Um, yeah. yeah, I call it the power of two. Mm. So, you know, in the psych research, which I'm sure you're familiar with, in the Milgram experiments and in Solomon Ash's experiments, 
uh, where they were doing a sort of peer conformity uh, and authority pressure to get people to do stuff that normally they would never do. Uh, say that two lines that are the same length are different lines, you know, different lengths, uh, or put, sh you know, provide electric shocks to people that hurt them. Uh, that's the Milgram experiments. They're fake shocks, but they thought they were real. Mm -hmm. And but but the escape conditions for both of those um, social conformity and authority pressures are to have a, an ally on your side. As soon as one person will say, these two lines are not the same size, then you'll have the courage to say, I, you know, you're absolutely right. As opposed to being the only one in the room who's saying, wait a minute, everybody's sure these two lines are the same. <laughs> no. uh, and, and when they put another person in the room in the, in the Milgram experiments, uh, they, uh, they, the, the people who are subject would see this other person say, I refuse to participate in this. This is immoral. They would immediately have the courage to say, me too. Uh, so, so it's really important not to allow yourself to be isolated in ethical conflict. Uh, Cause that's where, you're most vulnerable to getting gaslighted or uh, or just losing your courage. And um, and it's, it's the input that you're describing, uh, Nick, the, um, the consultative process, the brainstorming process, the enriching of your perspectives is part of it. But the other part is just bolstering. You know, you're not alone. Uh, this is, you know, this is something where you have at least one other mind that agrees that you know you're not crazy, uh, and that just transforms people's willingness to step up. Yes, yeah, and I think even an added layer that I've that's been beneficial in my experience is that when I do consult with like a supervisor, uh, before they even really share their opinion, they'll ask me, okay, like, well, what are your thoughts? Like, you're consulting with me, but like, what what are your leanings on this decision? And then from there, they'll kind of reflect, okay, like I can see where you're coming from. Or maybe that's the right decision. Maybe I'd go about it this way. Uh, but they're really allowing me to voice my opinion and make this a collaborative process. Yeah. You have good teachers. Yeah. yeah. So I was going to say, too, I was like, that sounds like a good leader. Yeah. Very yeah. grateful for that. Yeah. yeah. I've been lucky. Um, part of happiness. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah. And then there's like towards the latter chapters. There's the engage the decision maker, hold them accountable and choose to lead. Um, I'm curious about the engage the decision maker. Sure. Um, I mean, this is where I bring my persuasion, influence and negotiation processes into, into focus on this problem. Um, engage the decision maker is you've got, uh, you realize, you know, that there's uh, this uh, team leader who's, you know, hitting on summer interns and, so now what to do about it? And, uh, you know, you could just go, depending on your position and all the rest of it, you know, your options, you go to the person who's the wrongdoer and say, I've seen this, you got to stop. Um, or you could go to your mentor and say, uh, you know, what do you think I should do? Um, or you could go to that guy's supervisor and say, uh, you ought to know about this. Uh, and I'd be happy to engage with you if you want to talk to this person. Uh, and be part of the dialogue. Um, so engage means have a dialogue with. And in general, it, it isn't about blaming or accusing or, um, or litigating. or It's about actually um, starting a conversation 
And the most important thing, especially when it's sensitive subjects like ethics are, but it could be the same thing if it's a personal conflict over, you know, who ought to get credit for something. Start with your perceptions. Instead of saying, you're wrong, I'm right. You say, you know, I could be wrong, but it's my perception that the women who are the interns are a little bit nervous around you. I wonder if you've had any uh, thoughts about that. And so by putting it that way, the other person has a chance to behave in a way that's not defensive. Because all you said is, this is my perception. It looks to me, it seems as if, it appears that. And now they get to say, well, no, that's not the way it is at all. And here's how I see it. And now you're having this dialogue. I mean, one of the things about dialogue is instead of having a chess game where you move an argument, then they move an argument, then you try to checkmate them. A dialogue is you, cry, you, you share what you perceive to be the meaning of a situation. And then you give them a chance to contribute their perceptions of the meaning of the situation. And hopefully you can agree on some facts. You know, just, yeah, yeah. There was a team meeting yesterday with the summer interns. You know, that's a fact. What it means, that's interesting. So according to, you know, some of what I've been perceiving, it means that we have a group of nervous summer interns. Uh, and uh, the other person gets to say, well, that's not, I see it as a leadership opportunity. You know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, getting a chance to practice leadership. Oh, interesting. Well, you know, I, I could be wrong about this, but having uh, a really good leader in a group usually means that the people who are in the group feel comfortable around them. I wonder if, if that's something we could talk about. So you, you, you create this pool. Mm -hmm. of perceptions, and then try to jointly create some meaning out of it uh, that allows you to move the, the needle toward the answer you want. Uh, now, it, it, a dialogue also means it's possible you're wrong. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so you're, you know, engaging the decision maker doesn't mean slamming the decision maker. You know? It means talking to them, but not, but not in an argumentative way. Uh, and, you know, everything's in stages. You may get to a point with somebody and you discover that they're just a predator. And there's really nothing you can do to talk them into changing anything about what they do. And, you know, then it's time to get rid of them. And you have to do everything in your power to save the victims of this guy's behavior from further victimization. And that could involve some pretty rough organizational politics. And maybe you don't have a lot of power, but you combine with others and you start asserting it, mm -hmm. uh, you know, you got a duty. Uh, what are you going to do? So, um, so, so engaging the decision maker is a, a dialogue point. And I, I go through the book. I, I actually set real examples of dialogue and what an open-ended question sounds like and what reflective listening sounds like. And this idea of perception <clears throat> is helpful as a frame. So you don't come on too strong and you invite them to participate. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, that's what exactly what was coming to my mind of like in, inviting this conversation or inviting this person to the conversation instead of making it feel very accusatory and kind of pushing them to a side. Uh, but yeah, actually promoting this dialogue. Yeah. <clears throat> One of the fundamental insights 
Have you guys ever read How to Win Friends and Influence People? I haven't. I I have. I think it's in my l- library of of next up books yeah. to read. I'm pretty sure I have it. Yeah. I suggest you read it. Um, it, it's, it's, it was written in the 1930s by a kind of quirky guy. Dale Carnegie was pretty strange guy, but, but it's, and it's out of date in a sexist way, you know, it's, it's, but, but it, it develops over and over and over the fundamental secret how to influence people. And that is to recognize that above all, they have self-esteem. And that anytime you try to take away someone's self-esteem, you'll lose all your influence over them. And so this is true no matter you know who the person is or what kind of job they have or where they sit in the social pecking order or you know anything else. You know, the 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 fundamental respect other people's need for self-esteem is kind of a secret of organizational influence. You know, never challenge someone's self-esteem. And and, and, when it comes to ethical conflicts, the biggest risk is you will accuse them of being unethical because no one thinks they're unethical. I mean, on one hand, way down at one end of the spectrum, there are the psychopaths who are certifiably dangerous and immoral, but they don't think they're unethical. They don't even process ethics. It's not part of their utility function. They're they're missing the genetic link to morality. <laughs> they have no conscience. Right. And then once you get sort of that little bit inside the non-psychopath spectrum, then you've got people who've made mistakes, uh, who've been inattentive, who are greedy, who are feeling the pressure of circumstance uh, in a very strong way, and they. But everybody, everybody else is going to have an explanation for why they did what they did. That's going to protect their self-esteem. Everybody. And so, if you want to be effective in countering that, you can't attack them because the first first thing you do is you set them up for a, a for a counterattack. Now you're gone. Now now you're off to the races. I, I mean, I, I think that's it even lends itself really nicely to even the discussion we were just having about engaging the decision maker. And I think, you know, honestly, in the last four of rules of the code, I, I find that an, a, an extremely important theme that's kind of intertwined in all of them is uh, proper use of language and how we're talking to people and how, um, you know, the wrong use of language can be accusatory and the wrong use of language is going to get the the wrong engagement with the decision maker so how is that as something that you um consciously like weave in i know you obviously mentioned open-ended questions and and utilizing that stuff but how else do you think about language and how to utilize it through this uh this conscious code process because it seems extremely vital as part of it yeah it's 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 vital period you know, it's vital for leadership. It's vital for conflict management. It's vital for negotiations. It's vital for how to get along with your spouse. It's vital for everything. Mm-hmm. I, I think, I, I guess there's a long-term and a short-term answer to that. The short-term answer is you consult and you, and you, and you, and you script out a few things and see how does this sound? How does this sound? In our negotiating workshop, we actually have an exercise where we take people in, in a real situation and let's say I have to negotiate, you know, A negotiates with B to get some problem solved. We have A pretend to be B and then someone else gets to play A and then 
And then the person who's got the problem hears arguments being made to them and positions being made to them. And they get to go, that's not really very effective. Uh, that's a different, I wouldn't use that language. And so then you, then you investigate the frames that might be the most creative and, and effective, and then you script them. Now it's, you know, Napoleon's battle strategy applies. Uh, his battle strategy, it once someone once asked Napoleon, how do you win a battle? He said, you engage and then see what happens. Uh, so you got your scripts, but then they do something that you didn't expect. So you have to be ready to improvise. But at least you feel confident you're prepared and you have some ideas and maybe you work the language back in eventually or something. So that's the short term is you rehearse. Don't don't just wing it. Uh, now, you don't rehearse low consequence, you know, low importance. You rehearse high consequence, high importance. But it never hurts to practice rehearsing even in low consequence. <laughs> the long-term way to get this better is read better books, listen to better lectures, listen to audiobooks of great literature, um, appreciate poetry that you happen to like. I'm not saying all poetry, but everybody likes some of it. Because you're, as long as you expose yourself to people who are being careful with words, you will notice something. They're really good with metaphors. And metaphors are the connective tissue in relationships. So if I know something about the other person, like they like soccer, then somewhere when I'm trying to persuade them or influence them, I can use a figure of speech or a metaphor and say, well, you know, this is just like, you know, getting to penalty kicks. No one wants to get there, but you better be ready. Uh, and they're, they're already like, they have a soccer mind. And so all the rest of the stuff you were going to say is unnecessary now because you've connected your point to their frame of reference. And so you know, this kind of uh, choice of words and choice of imagery comes from being better informed about good words and good imagery, and then better informed about the mindset of the people you're talking with. That's so interesting, because when you were talking earlier about uh, ice hockey, and then you also added the, the reference of soccer, soccer has been a huge part of my life. And so just you adding that I was like, oh yeah, like this, this is gonna be <laughs> yeah. cool. The hockey one would have gone right over his head. <laughs> yeah. So you know, it's a, it's funny when you're a teacher. Uh, here, here's here's a little nugget um, that I learned early in my study of being a teacher. I knew I was a teacher, but I didn't know how to do it, so I had to study that. Um, nobody ever learns anything except on the foundation of what they already know. A good teacher knows that, and they find out what their class knows, and then they build from that to the part that they don't know that the teacher wants them to find out about. A bad teacher couldn't care less what their class knows, and they just start with what they know. And the class is looking at each other going, what the hell is going on here? What, you know, and, uh, and, um, and, and then they think they've done their job because they've conveyed the knowledge. 
but they have done no work whatsoever to connect it to what this class already knows. So when you're pers- that's teaching, but it's the same thing when you're trying to have a dialogue with somebody or trying to influence them or affect the decision is you figure out kind of what their mindset is, you know, what their most recent experiences have been. Uh, sometimes you can refer to stuff that's in the news, you know, uh, that you know they've been exposed to. And then you present your options as either being attractive or unattractive relative to this thing they already know. And now you're going you're gonna to make a sale just like that, comparatively speaking. Uh, and so language is important. And the most important kind of language is metaphoric language. It's like this. It seems it's it's in some ways similar to that. Um, you know, if you think about it this way, you'll probably be able to figure out how what I'm talking about, uh, and um, and that that just accelerates insight in a conversation. I mean, this is this resonates a lot with me. Uh, there's one memory in particular, and talking about or touching on soccer briefly. Um, I had a coach for uh, uh, just a summer camp. So it was just for a week that was coaching me. And he was trying to uh, improve my awareness of different players on the field and just like where I'm at on the field. And so he's, I, this was when I was like 13 years old. So I was playing a lot of video games. He's like, do you play FIFA, uh, the soccer video game? And I was like, yeah. And he was like, okay, well, imagine you're sitting on the sidelines or playing FIFA and you have this aerial view of the field. Like you have a helicopter view of the field, pretty much when you're on the field, you need to kind of imagine that somewhat. And I was like, oh, wow. Yeah. Like that, that makes a lot of sense. And all of a sudden you have the picture of the whole picture. Yes. Right. You get a map. All of a and sudden. now it's, now it's a big interactive multidimensional problem. And you know that everything affects everything else. Yeah. It's perfect. Yeah. It's perfect. Yeah. And it was Way just go, coach. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's something I still think back to today. And it was only like a 30 second interaction. And yeah. then I got back on the field. Yeah. But little things like that change the course of history. And I use an example in another book of um, the 13 days when Kennedy faced the Cuban Missile Crisis. Mm-hmm. And um, the Russian, uh, the Russians were moving missiles into Cuba and the military, the American military was ready to, to nuke Cuba to defend Americans' borders. And, and uh, you know, World War III was, the clock was ticking. And in the White House, the generals had just presented this tactical plan to literally bomb the missile sites, which would have escalated the Russian response and who knows where it would end. And it was going to be a surprise attack. And Bobby Kennedy, uh, John Kennedy's brother, who was attorney general, slipped him a note uh, on the side of the table. And the note said, now I know how Tojo felt just before Pearl Harbor. Because the Japanese generals had persuaded the emperor to attack Pearl Harbor in a surprise attack. And it was seen in America, of course, as this great immoral uh, awful, you know, act of war, which we never forgave them for. And we, you know, we're going to defeat them no matter what it took after that. And so Kennedy saw that and he suddenly thought to himself, I will be seen as the emperor of Japan in history if I call a surprise attack on Cuba. And from that moment, that option was off the table. 
And then they went down the road to barricade, you know, uh, uh, other kinds of, which they ended up doing and it worked out. But that one metaphor, boom. It just, it just even re-scripted that whole, inter- like that whole historical scenario in my own head right now in this moment, yeah. having that piece of perspective, because I'd never heard that story. And yeah, like it's totally true. Yep. And, and uh, you know, nobody else could have slipped that note because Bob and John Kennedy were brothers. And, you know, there are a lot of things that made that happen, but, but Kennedy, Bobby Kennedy used just the right metaphor to persuade his brother and didn't even have to open his mouth. Wow. That's powerful. Um, to kind of, I think in conclusion, I, Brennan and I took the conflict style quiz. Oh, okay. We both, came back, uh, we both came back as accommodators. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, so just for your listeners, um, that conflict styles quiz can be taken on my personal website, grichardshell.com. And so if anybody wants to take it, uh, it's for free and, and they can access it off of that website, grichardshell.com. And uh, there are five different conflict styles. And, and I, I put it in the book because I think personality is an important differentiator in how you manage conflict. And an accommodator, as you both are, means that you're both relationship oriented and you want other people to like you. Uh, and there's nothing wrong with that at all, unless you find yourself with a boss who knows that you want to please them mm. and then puts the pressure and, uh, and, and they use the metaphor of your loyalty to get you to do stuff that you know you shouldn't do. And you'll feel the conflict then. All of a sudden, it's going to be like a big conflict for you because the boss is going to tell you to do something you know you shouldn't do. And then you're also going to want to please the boss. And and, and, and not just because you want to please the boss, because you want to please everybody. Uh, you know, you're a nice person. And you don't like to make other people unhappy. You know, it's, it's not a fun day for you when other people are unhappy. So, uh, so understanding that that's one of your characteristics, which is a strength, in your ability to get all those people and your families, your communities, and you know, all that stuff. It's a weakness if the other people know about it and they use it to manipulate you. Uh, and they use your, I want to be a pleased, I want to please you, I want to be loyalty, I want to be make you happy uh, as a, a hook to get you to do something that you know you shouldn't do. And so that once again, you know, your, your sensitivity will be, I know I shouldn't be doing this. That'll be alive in your mind, but you'll feel the pressure of, but maybe it's not really wrong. You know, maybe it's by virtue of the fact that you've got this personality trait that causes you to want to please others. Yeah. I felt very fitting, like, because being high on agreeableness, I definitely find that maybe I commit to too much and Like establishing those boundaries is yeah. a little more difficult at times. Yeah, it's hard to say no, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, that's something you can work on. You can get better at that. Yeah, yeah. It's definitely been a process, but I, I feel like I've been more mindful of it. Just talk to Brendan about it. He'll tell you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> two, 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 accom- two accommodating people are stronger than one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If you need to... Uh, you know, leverage the power of two, Nick. I'm here. <laughs> yeah, here <we> <laughs> that's great. I'm glad you did that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was it was awesome to kind of go through it, and it was funny to 
like I did it first. I was like, oh, I got a commentator. And then Brennan did it. And he's like, I got a commentator. <laughs> and as I thought about it too, I was like, it, it makes sense. Like we get along really well. Yeah. Our values yeah, yeah. are pretty yeah. much aligned. We, yeah. yeah. We all, we all like people like ourselves. It's very common. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, and I guess just to wrap up, is there a piece of advice or maybe something in your experience that you just really want to hit home to listeners, something that you really want them to take away? Wow, that's a great question. Um, I would, I guess I would just leave the thought that there's no such thing as a little conflict over values. Uh, because people do tend to say, well, I'm going to you know, choose my battles. I'm not going to take this one up. But there's a Chinese saying, um, don't do evil just because it's a little evil. Mm. And so I would urge your listeners to take seriously even small matters where their conscience is uh, telling them that there's something there. And, and then just ask, okay, uh, it may not be a big evil, but, but, but let's do something about it and do something modest that's appropriate to the scale, uh, but let's not let it pass. Uh, and I think that when you get in the habit of that, people will respect you more. You'll be seen as a person of character in the social group that you're working with. And they'll become ultimately become a leader because people look to leaders to, uh, to lead on values. Uh, and uh, so just there's no such thing as a small matter when it comes to values. Mm. All right. I have one more that I think would be really interesting to hear from you on because I think you've had such a um impact uh, such a big impact on Wharton as a program and you've been able to see a lot of it um if you were to give an, a message to prospective MBA students about um and it can be whatever you think the most important thing is whether it be you know finding the best fit or uh, how to navigate through an MBA program what kind of advice would you give new MBA students um wow that, that, that that's especially hard because p people come to MBA programs with so many different agendas. Mm -hmm. uh, some are Navy veterans who are, you know, special forces. Some are coming from, uh, you know, experienced finance or consulting careers. Some are coming from being teacher America, you know? Uh, so it's, it's a really hard question to answer because it varies so widely what people are there for, what place it's on their journey. I guess I would just urge anyone who's in a rich environment like that to um, to make sure that they um, use the experience for their personal growth. Because another thing about MBA programs is that they're huge social conformity engines. You know, there it's very there's a very definite social tone that most MBA programs have, and they tend to gravitate people towards certain industries for recruiting and certain social experiences for the parties and the other things, certain you know expectations about how they're supposed to use their time. And I think the people that get the most out of the programs are the ones who say, "Okay, this is like this ma amazing music festival, and how can I expose myself?" to uh to the to the variety and to the to the richness to uh to make this a personal development experience and not just a, a just a repeat process of you know whatever the last thing was that worked in college um, and um, if you have a learner's a lifelong learner's attitude 
about using that experience in that way, I think you'll get a lot more out of it, whatever your goals are. It's a beautiful metaphor to end on. Yeah, I think so too. Thank you so much for taking the time today. This has been awesome. Yeah, thank Thank you so much. Well, Nick and Redden, thanks for asking me. It's been a pleasure uh, having a conversation with you. So good luck to you. Thank you. Thanks.